Reading a book, Kenny Copeland, The Blessings of the Lord, makes rich and adds no sorrow with it. Proverbs ten twenty two. Kenny Copeland was estimated to be at a three hundred to seven hundred and fifty million dollars worth. That is his net worth. Kenny Copeland is, uh, you know, a pilot. Went into the ministry in 1967 or something like that. Uh, he's about 85 years old today. And uh, he he runs his own airplane. And he's given away about 30 airplanes. You know, uh, and he does, he, he rebuilds them before he gives them away. You know, make sure they're in, they're worthy of a gift. I once saw Kenneth Copeland come to a humble little church in uh, Pomona on Hope Avenue, a black church. It was about 95% black people, African-American, if you will. But my brother, my soul brothers and sisters, they had an incredible amount of love for God, for the Lord. They're just beaming with they look at you with love, man, and it just melts you, you know. The, the whole congregation was just beautiful people. You know, these people were dedicated to the Lord. And they were fun. They danced, and all the children would dance all around the congregation, The older us older people, as we sat down there praising God. They're just enjoying and loving God in, in a frenzy. I saw Marilyn Hickey there, saw Sean Bach there, and Kenny Copeland came, and Richard Roberts came. Amazing, huh? All these people would visit this little church. They must have had something, and other speakers that I didn't know. A lot of prophecies. One guy prophesied that I was going to, a Hispanic uh, preacher prophesied that I was going to go. And take the message of Christ to my to my people, you know. And I said, "Who are my people? Lowriders, uh, alcoholics, drug addicts. Who are my people? Sinners. How about sinners? And and teach them to look up to God. Because it's easy, more easier than you think. Excuse me." I'm up at 3.30 just about. And enjoying God and having a good time. Anyway, make a long story short, I got a book here that says, The Blessings of the Lord Makes Rich and Has No Sorrow With It. That's the name of, of uh, Kenneth Copeland's book, The Blessings. And one time I was going through some uh, hard times and I heard Kenneth Copeland say, If you're having financial problems, he goes, read First John 1 through 5, and your financial problems will be over. Read it on a daily basis, he said. So I read it for about a year on a daily basis, read it out loud. And lo and behold, exactly what he said is what exactly happened. You know, everything, the ship is, my ship is a lot bigger. I mean, it's huge now. 
than what it was. Last time it was capsizing, it was taking in water. Um, just through the readings, I didn't see how those readings can benefit me. But they did. Now I'm telling you. But you can't lead a horse. You can lead a horse to water and then turn around and kick him in. Okay, his uh, success is guaranteed. In the early years of Bonnie Kenny Copeland, life was far from blessed. He was a mess, writes Kenny Copeland. Life was a mess. A failed business venture had left me broke and unemployed. A lifetime of borrowing money had buried me under a mountain of debt that I had no way to repay. His previous lifestyle of sin, debt, and failure had left them hopeless. Then he discovered the blessing. I no longer had the mentality of a poor man. In a matter of days, the mindset was gone. In its place was the realization that I am blessed. Allow this revelation to change Kenneth Copeland's life forever. To convert your thinking, fuel your faith, and accomplish God's will for your life too. Failure is not an option. Set yourself on a path to guarantee success today. Amen. His book is called, again, The Blessing of the Lord by Kenny Copeland. Preface. When the Lord first revealed to me the magnitude of the blessing, he instructed me to mark my thinking by writing it in capital letters whenever I refer to it in print. I am following that instruction throughout this book. I believe it will have the effect on you that it had on me and will help renew your mind to the full power and scope of the blessing. Okay, that's the introduction. Lord, we just thank you for the reading of this word, Lord. You bring it into our home, into our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, reading of the book, Kenneth Copeland. <clears throat> the blessings of the Lord makes one rich and he has no sorrow with it. The blessings of the Lord makes rich and he has no sorrow with it. Proverbs 10, 22. Introduction. Oh, I might not be able to read. Okay, pro prologue. Someone asked me why did this title book, The Blessing of the Lord Makes Rich? Well, the whole book is about the blessing that began in Genesis 1-2. God's last work of creation was to bless man. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God. You can't get any closer to the beginning than that. The blessing is the very creative force of God. It created all we see. We lost the power of the word blessing, which means to empower. It's God's empowerment, his power that establishes the universe. He put the same created power and anointing on Adam and his wife, mankind. They were created in his image. He told them to replenish the earth 
be fruitful and dominate it in love. God rested the seventh day after he finished his work of creation. His last work was not the creation of man, it was the blessing of man. Then he sat down. After man's sin, however, God had to go back to work, and that's what this book is about. God's restoration of the blessing on mankind, where it belonged through his blood covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, passing the down line until Jesus was born out of the covenant. Even when sin erupted and the earth was destroyed in the flood, God continued the blessing through covenant with Noah. And God blessed Noah and his son. Genesis 9-1. God started it all again. He did it. How did he do it? The first thing he said was, Be fruitful and multiply, which is exactly what he said to Adam. Centuries later, when Jesus was crucified and made a curse for us, Galatians 3.13, God made the way for the blessing of Abraham to come. Not only on the natural descendants of Abraham, but also on the Gentiles. Because of Jesus' redemptive work on the cross, we also can walk in the blessing. It is now back on the sons of Noah, Ham, Japheth, and Chem. Ham and Japheth follow Adam's lead, which resulted in the creation of the Babylonian system. Man, <clears throat> men trying to meet their own needs without the blessing of God, but Abraham came out of the Shem and Jesus out of Abraham. Now, through Christ Jesus, we who were once known as Gentiles, which means outside the covenant of God, are grafted in, in Romans eleven seventeen. He has once again provided for us a source. If you want to see the blessing at work, look at Job. Take a look at what had Satan so upset. He said to God, Does he, Job, serve you for nothing? You have blessed him and all that he has, and you built a wall around him, and look how rich he is. Job 1, 9 through 10. Paraphrase. King James Version. And New Living Translation. Well, doesn't Proverbs 22 says, The blessing of the Lord, and make it rich, and he added no sorrow with it? The word sorrow is translated toil. The blessing cancels out toiling for a living. You don't have to toil in exchange for the blessing of God. He didn't put it price on it. He didn't put a price on it. Whether you're working for minimum wage or God has called you to manage a bank, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. And the Bible, the constitution of his kingdom says, the blessing will work in your behalf. Notice that the important part of Proverbs 10.22 is the blessing of the Lord. It makes the, word, the world tries to meet its own need without the blessing. They say, we got to make a living. I make deals. We make appointments. 
But God's constitution, the word of God says, the blessing makes. When we seek and live in the blessing by faith in God's word, then it makes all these things to be added to us. If God assigned you to be a janitor in a church, for example, or an apostle or a car dealer or whatever it is, he needs you there. And every workman is worthy of his hire, Luke 10, 7. But you're not limited to that hire because of the blessing. The employer may be a channel God uses, but he's not your source. Only God, through the blessing of Abraham, that came on us through Christ Jesus is our source. When you look at that source, you become a joint owner of the kingdom of God. When God says, I want you to go over there, don't expect those people to pay you anything. God's going to pay you. Do you remember what he told his disciples? Don't bring any money. Don't bring any clothes. He was telling them to be poor, he wasn't telling them to be poor. He was telling them, quit bringing your staff. You're working for me. I will take care of you. This is a timely message to a hurting world. The blessing is the answer. I want to share something the Lord said to me in October 2008. All this economy mess was just at the beginning of its crash. The Babylonian system had been attacking particularly the United States for the last 110-115 years although it attacked the whole world within that time frame in some respects erupting into the Bolshevik revolution in Eastern Europe in 1917 though the Babylonian system has been operating since the Tower of Babel this was the time it began to be called socialism communism Nazism and all the isms that government attempting to meet man's need without God were coined. Those systems had, have always failed because only God gives increase. But men continually want to create systems with rules to keep God out because they want to be in control. Their Lord, the devil, is the only one who is behind their attempts. He's after the blessing, any way he can get it. Jesus said of him, The thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and to destroy, John 10, 10. The word of God is the source of the blessing because the word, because the word is the source of faith, Romans 10, 17. They which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Galatians 3, 9. It is still the connecting, the connection of the blessing in our life today and brings into manifestation from the spiritual world material goods, healing, whatever needs to be changed in the natural world, and it destroys the curse. The anointing is part of the blessing, and the power of the anointing is what strips out the curse. It removes burdens and destroys yokes. Isaiah 10:27. The Lord said to me that day in October 2008, Don't pay attention to or make any plans based on what the media says or what politicians say. Stand on my word in John 16. 
Pay attention to me. I, the Holy Spirit, will obey verses. Um, I will obey verses 13 and 15. I will show you things to come. I will lead you through troubled times. I already have the plan for you. And it's a very good one. Follow it. It will not only get you through. It will place you in a very high place. A rich place. A strong place of victory. See what God is saying? We're in the world, but we're not of it. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, if you will seek this, this kingdom first, inquiring of God and his kingdom about every word, deed, and plan, all the things you need will be added to you. They come out of the kingdom, not the government, not your job. God has a plan. He'll place you, and when you obey and follow him, you don't need to pay attention to what it looks like. Just go on and do what he says to do because he has a plan, and your provision is part of it. Don't pay any attention to what the world has or doesn't have for you. Let God take care of that. The Lord said, you will have to discipline yourself and be diligent to listen to me. All the other voices will have a plan. My goodness, I never heard so many politicians plan in all my life, particularly during elections, when all the politicians have their plans and almost all of it, it has a cap that limits its This is what the Lord says. He has a plan. God has a plan. He'll place you, and when you obey and follow him, you don't need to pay attention to what it looks like. Just go on and do what he said to do because he has a plan, and your provision is part of it. Don't pay any attention to what the world has or doesn't have for you. Let God take care of that, the Lord said. You will have to discipline yourself and be diligent to listen to me. All the other voices will have a plan. So see, so what is God saying? Say we're in the world, but we're not of it. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, if you will seek this kingdom first, inquiring of God and his kingdom about every word, deed, and plan, all the things you need will be added to you. They come out of the kingdom, not the government, not your job. My goodness, I never heard so many politicians plan in all my life. Particularly during elections, with all the politicians have their plans. See you later, Aaron. My goodness, I never heard so many politicians plan all my life. <clears throat> particularly during elections. Right now? Right now? Got it. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Appreciate Oh. All right. See you later. Okay, <clears throat> my goodness, I never heard so many politicians plan in all my life.
particularly during elections, when all the politicians have their plans and almost all of it has a cap that limits its success because the Babylonian system is limited and no one has the guts to say what God has already said in his plan. So listen to this. They all have a word and idea for your future and security. Don't listen to Babylon's system. It has fallen apart. Notice that America isn't falling apart. The Babylonian system we allow to come in and bungle things up for the past hundred years is falling apart. My system is stronger than ever, says the Lord. My kingdom is flourishing. The blessing is the place to be. That's what this book is all about, to teach you how to get into the blessing. How do you get there from where you are now? How do you get out of that dark kingdom and over into the kingdom of God? You were born into it. Colossians 1.13 says very plainly that he has already delivered you from the authority of darkness. That's the Babylonian system. And translate you into the kingdom of his dear son. So you don't need to be living as a natural born citizen of God's kingdom and trying to live by the rules of the kingdom of darkness. Those rules produce fear and fear is a serious damaging polluting agent to fate which is the power of the blessing kingdom. The blessing is the place to be. Keep your eyes on my word. Listen to it. It will guide you and I will perform it. Love me, says the Holy Spirit. Love me. Love my people as I have loved you. Walk in it. Love never fails and neither does my plan. This world hasn't changed. Gloria in my life personally. Excuse me. This word has changed Gloria and me personally. We've been walking this out and learning about the blessings since I was a student at Oral University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Oral Roberts. Many years ago, while there, I, Kenneth E. Hagen says, we've been redeemed from the curse. While there, I heard Kenneth E. Hagen say, we've been redeemed from the curse. The blessing of Abraham is ours. At that time, blessing didn't mean much more to me except something one said after a sneeze. So when Kennedy Hagen said that, I thought, well, it would probably be good to find out what the blessing of Abraham is. So I began reading how God blessed Abraham, saying, I will make thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that cursed thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And Abraham was very rich. Genesis 12, 2-3 and 13-2. I was stunned already. I was stunned. I already knew that God wanted us to prosper. But I never heard of very rich in cattle, silver, and in gold. I kept going back and seeing the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. Galatians three fourteen, And it was talking about the seed of Abraham. I continue reading in Galatians 3.29, which says, And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
I began digging into the promise and seeing it was all the way through the New Testament. As I studied the promise year after year, it kept growing bigger inside me. I began to see the blessing was at the very beginning too. When the blessing, when the blessed one blessed Adam, I found that the blessing spans the whole Bible. Much of why the Spirit of God had me write this book and why I had such a desire to get this information on paper and into people's hands. I found in Isaiah 51.1, but it needs to be understood from Galatians 3.7-9. Know you, therefore, that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham. In thee shall all nations be blessed, so then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. The blessing then is the gospel, the good news. Now read verses 13 and 14. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Curse is everyone that hanging on a tree. The blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Look at verses 26-29. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heir according to the promise. Again, hey, for you are a children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now come back over to Isaiah 51, 1 and 2. Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness, you that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock where you are cut and to the hole of the pit where you were digged. Look unto Abraham your father and unto Sarah that bear you. Or look unto Abraham your father and unto Jesus who gave you the new birth. For I call him alone and bless him and increase him. We're the seed of that blessing. The promise is on us. Verse 3 goes on to say, For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her wasted places. And he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Hebrews 12, 18-24 calls the body of Christ Mount Zion, but it is not a proof text for replacement theology. The body of Christ doesn't replace Israel as Zion. We are in Christ Jesus. We don't take anything from away from Israel. We are the continuation of God's promise to Abraham. Isaiah 51.3 in the Eden Covenant It was the covenant between God and Adam before he sinned. God wants his garden back. He intended for that garden to be spread all over this planet until the earth became the garden spot of the universe. Your place can be the garden spot of your universe that's what God's plan. 
That was God's plan, and he never changes. He made man to live in a garden, and that should have been the worst environment men ever experienced because I have not seen and nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9 The Garden of Eden was just the starting point. It should have been expanded by Adam and Eve and their descendants into a greater and greater area which God just observed his children at work because he handed over the power and authority to continue to create that garden all over the world. I'm convinced that God's plan was for us to finish expanding the Garden of Eden all over the world, then take care of the other planets and continue on and on. It's still his plan, but he had to start over again because sin got into the universe all the way up to the touching heaven. It didn't get into heaven, but the heavenly utensils of worship had to be re-sanctified by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 9, 21 and 23. The blessing then is the key issue to creating the Garden of Eden in your life and influencing the world around you. It was Jesus' key issue to the reason. The reason the Pharisees and religious people got so mad at him was because he was preaching the blessing to it of Abraham. They never heard that. They had heard the law and its curse. The people got so excited, they said, You mean we're blessed? The blessing was healing and raising people from the dead. It was the power of the Blessed One. Jesus, God's blessed Son, and the blessing would do the same thing in your life. The Bible is the blessing book. This book you're reading is simply a help to get you into the true blessing book to bring us, bring its blessing into your life. God's Word will take you from living outside the blessing where storms, disasters, and hard times tear up and destroy things, to living inside it, appropriating the blessing in your own life and replenishing the earth around you with it. In short time, you will learn how to use the power and authority God gave you to release the blessing into your life. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, I pray for my partner. And for those who will read this book, according to Ephesians 1, 16-23, open the eyes of their understanding. You begin the book of Ephesians 1, 3 with the word blessed. Blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. All the blessing is ours throughout eternity. Before the foundations of the world. Oh God, fill our spirits with lights and understanding about what you did for us through Jesus on the cross and his power toward us through the resurrection. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 1. The blessing of the Lord makes rich and adds no sorrow with it. Proverbs 10.22 The Blessing, Love's Ultimate Gift, Chapter 1 Get ready to fly. 
I first caught sight of the power of the blessing back in 1967. My initial revelation of it included only a fraction of what I know now. Yet it hit me with the much power that it transformed my thinking and changed my life almost overnight. And I don't mind telling you, I was desperate for change. I've been born again only a few years at that time. I come out of a lifestyle so steep in sin that everything I enjoyed before I was saved was either illegal, immoral, or fattening. Because I knew next to nothing of what the Bible says about how to live in victory, even after I made Jesus the Lord of my life, I continued to stumble from one failure to another. In most ways, my life was a mess. A failed business venture had left me broke and unemployed. A lifetime of borrowing money, glorious convinced that as a child I borrowed money on my tricycle, had buried me under a mountain of debt that I had no way to repay. I knew I was called to preach. I also knew the Lord was leading me to go to Oral Roberts University. But I wouldn't do it because I couldn't see how I could possibly afford it. How could I go to school full-time when I had a wife and family to support? Even if I did, where would I get the tuition money? Gloria, on the other hand, was in favor of obeying God, regardless of the cost. She wanted to pack up what little we had and put the kids in the car, point it toward Tulsa, and head for or are you? If we did that, we starve, I told her. Can it? We're starving now, she answered. We might as well starve in the will of God as starve outside of it. She was right, and I knew it. So in 1966, we moved to Tulsa. For the first time in my adult life, I found myself in the perfect will of God. And I was thrilled about it. But even so, as a 30-year-old student making only a part-time income, I had no idea how I was going to make it financially. The only thing I knew for sure was if there was a way, I would find it in the Word of God. So I threw myself into the Word day and night, night and day. In addition to reading and studying the Bible, I loved a reel-to-reel tape recorder with me everywhere I went. I sat next to my bed at night so I could go to sleep listening to the word of faith being preached. I got up in the morning, turned the recorder back on, and listened to the tapes again. I shaved, ate, and drove with the word being preached to me the whole time. It was then that the reality of what God had done for us through the plan of redemption began to dawn on me. As I listened to messages about the new covenant and poor over scripture like Galatians 3.9 that tells how, how we by faith are blessed with faithful Abraham, I got my first glimpse of the blessing and it sent shockwaves through my spirit for the first time ever. I realized that truly Christ has redeemed me from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, Curse is everyone that hanging on a tree. Let the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. 
And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Verses 13, 14, and 29. The day I actually grasped the whole, those verses were saying, it hit me like a freight train coming through a tunnel. I am the seed of Abraham. I am the product of a blood sword oath, a covenant cut between God and his firstborn son. The Lord Jesus Christ is my blood brother. Because of my American Indian background, I knew something about blood covenants. I knew how real and serious they are. So it didn't take me long to realize that as a blood covenant heir of Abraham, everything God promised him belonged to me. I didn't know for sure all that included, but I was smart enough to know that he and his family prospered everywhere they went. There wasn't a poor man among them. Every one of them was rich. Even my lightning-fast mind could figure out what that meant. Glory to God, I am not poor anymore. I went to bed that night a wealthy man. It didn't matter to me that I was still in debt. I didn't care that on the outside my circumstance hadn't yet changed. What mattered was the change that had taken place in the inside. Finally, after years of thinking like a poor man, the spirit of adoption was crying out within me. I have a blood covenant with Almighty God. I have a Heavenly Father, and He's rich, and He's powerful, and He is backing me as surely as He backed Abraham, as surely as He backed Jesus Himself. I am not under financial curse anymore. I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, because I am the righteousness of God in Christ. The blessing of Abraham is mine. I no longer had the mentality of a poor man. In a matter of day, the mindset was gone. In its place was the realization that I am blessed. Even much later, the mountain of death that once towered over us was gone. Every cent of it was paid, and Gloria and I promised the Lord we never borrow money again. That wasn't always an easy promise to keep. A few years later, the Lord told me to begin a radio broadcast. Over the next 12 months, we went on 700 stations in the Continental Station of the United States. Our ministry budget went from 300,000 the year before to 400,000 per month for the radio bill alone. The blessing was working. By then, the Lord had made it clear to me that in addition to operating debt-free, I was never to ask anyone for money. You receive offerings according to the scripture, he said, but don't ever put pressure on people. Put pressure on my word instead. Put pressure on the blessing of Abraham that's yours in Christ, and it will bring in what you need. I knew very little about what that meant back then, but I acted on the part I did understand. Sure enough, the bills got paid and the ministry kept growing. As a result, through the past 40 
plus years, we've been able to preach the uncompromised word just like God told us to do. On every available voice from the top of the world to the bottom and all the way around. It has cost more than a billion dollars to do it. But that's okay because the blessing of God has provided every cent. I make no apologies for preaching about the prosperity that's including in the blessing. I was overjoyed back in 1967 to find out that as a believer, I've been set free from lack and I'm still elated about it today. But I also realized that being blessed includes far more than having money. Financial prosperity is only one small portion of the blessing. It's one of the first parts God revealed to me. But it wasn't the only part. In fact, the Lord has been expanding my understanding of what it means to be blessed for decades now. During that time, he's taught me more about different parts of his blessing. He's increased my revelation of the new birth and the salvation part of it. He's opened my eyes more and more to the healing part of it. The peace that passes understanding part and the gift of the spirit part. He showed me how his blessing can affect not only our lives, our families and the church, but also the government and nation. He has put the pieces together for me one at a time. That's how we develop and grow, you know, a little at a time. No one has ever learned anything advanced or complex all at once. It's a process. In spiritual things, just as in natural things, we must build one revelation on another. We move forward in our understanding, step by step, if we are going to get very far. If you doubt that, look at the history of the church. Ever since the Dark Ages, when the devil tried to strip the church of her power and rob her, and rob her of revelation by convincing ungodly leaders to lock up the word in monasteries away from God's people, the Lord had been restoring lost truths to us little by little. He started with Martin Luther's day by restoring the foundational truth of the new birth. The just shall live by faith, Romans 117. The truth came as a shock to people back in the 1500s. Religious leaders were enraged by it. Multitudes puzzled over whether or not to be leave it. Yet today, the entire evangelical church takes the revelation for granted. We don't argue about it anymore. We know we're saved, not by our own works, but by simply faith in Jesus. After that revelation was restored, God began adding others. Through the Pentecostal movement that emerged in the early 1900s, for example, he took us from the new birth and reintroduced the scriptural truth about the baptism in the Holy Spirit, Matthew 3.11. Four years later, during the great healing revival, he restored the revelation of divine healing. 1 Peter 2.24 During the charismatic movement in the 60s, he had a revelation about the gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.4.10 At the end of the decade, he taught us about the power and integrity 
of his written word and how to operate by faith in the word. Hebrews 4.12, Mark 11.23-24. Here's my point. God didn't pour out those revelations on the church all at once. They were always there, but he restored them one by one. That's the way he always works, both with his body as a whole and with us as individual believers. He developed us as a lie little at a time. He takes us, as the Bible says, from faith to faith and from glory to glory. Romans 1, 17, 2 Corinthians three eighteen. We must never forget that while we guard while we guard as precious the things God has already revealed to us in his word, we must always remember there are things in the word we have not yet seen. There are scriptural truths we have not yet learned. There are biblical revelations we have not yet received. God isn't finished with us yet. When we forget this fact, we get stuck. We get thinking our group or denomination knows all there is to know. We set up camp around the last revelation we receive and refuse to go on any further. Believers have done that again and again. Years, years ago, some groups grabbed hold of the truth about the new birth and blessed multitudes of people by teaching them how to get saved by faith. But when anyone tried to tell them about the baptism in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, they slammed their doors on that revelation. No, we're not having any of that around here. They said, we have the new birth and that's all we need. Some of the Holy Spirit baptized believers made the same mistake. When God sent someone to teach them about receiving healing and financial provisions by faith, they would have none of it. They closed their minds to scriptural truth and said, Bible or no Bible, that's not what grandma taught, and I am not going to believe it. Don't get me wrong, I'm not picking on those groups of believers. I love them and believe we all owe them a depth of gratitude for the truth they help restore to the body of Christ. But I also realize we should learn from each other's mistakes. We must recognize and overcome our carnal tendencies to resist new revelations. We must see that what we have learned is not a campground. It's a building base. We must understand that if we want to go on and grow up, as the Bible says, into the measures of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 4.13. I've been reminded of the of that again and again, as God has expanded my understanding of the blessing. Every time he has shown me something about it, new, it, it's in the word. And I think, this is it. No. Now I have the whole picture. Excuse me, let me read that again. I've been reminded of that again and again, as God has expanded my understanding of the blessing. Every time he has shown me something new about it, in the word, I think this is it. Now I have the whole picture. Then he teach me something else. And I find myself saying, I'm surprised I never saw this before. 
The process had been much like the flying flight training I received as a pilot. When I first began to fly airplanes, the instructor didn't tell me everything I was. He spent thousands of hours through the years. I spent thousands of hours through the years learning different aspects of flying. I started by learning the basic skills one at a time and practicing them with an instructor in a little two-seater single-engine Cessna. I never forgot the first time I finally got to fly the plane solo. I was so excited I could hardly stand it. I figured I knew everything I needed to know, and I was ready to go. But there was one thing I hadn't considered. I'd done all my training flights in the early morning at that time of day. There was very little air traffic, so coming in for a landing was simple. I radioed the tower, and they cleared me to land right away. I took off on my first solo flight. However, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, a much busier time of day, so when I got ready to land and radio the tower for clearance, I didn't get the response I expected I didn't hear. Roger says, now 5-5 X-ray, you're clear for touch and go, land on runway 17. Instead, I heard this, Cessna 555 X-ray, you're number 8 to follow a DC-3 just outside the outer marker. Call when you get him in sight. What? <laughs> no 8? Outer marker? What's an outer marker? I had no idea. Sir, this is my first solo. Roger that, XX55 Ray, he answered. No problem, just hold your altitude and heady. I'll tell you when to make your turn. That sounded a lot better to me. The outer marker business, I held steady, and after a while, the tower control said, Okay, 55 X-Ray, do you see the DC-3 off to your left there? That's the traffic you're to follow. When he passes under your left wing, turn left. That was a revelation to me. I didn't yet learn what waiting to make my turn until the airplane I'm following passes under my left wing ensures I'll never collide with that plane. Hey, that's cool, I thought. And with that knowledge, I made my three touch and go land these as safely and happily as a pig in the sunshine. <laughs> Many years have passed since then. And these days, I'm not flying in single-engine Cessna anymore. I am flying a 600-mile-per-hour Citation X that is far more complicated. I had never learned... I had to learn a lot of additional information piece by piece in order to fly that plane. But the revelation I got on my first solo flight still applies. No matter how fast I'm flying, if I follow the, that procedure of letting another aircraft pass under my left wing before I turn, I won't hit it. I told you all that so I could say this. What you are about to read in this book is so not simply a rehearsal of the first revelations. I received in the early years of my ministry, as wonderful as those are and as life-changing as they were back then, 
and still proved to be those first glimpses into the blessings of Abraham were only the beginning. You might say they were the initial lessons I learned in the flight school of the word. Those principles still apply, but have now become the foundation for new levels of revelation. As I move into those new levels and begin to see the full scope of the blessing, I felt a little like I did when I started training for the Citation X, as if I were learning to fly all over again. One pilot who went through the classes with me said observing the mountains of new information we were being bombarded with was like trying to drink from a fire hose. We had to learn a whole new way of doing things, something our brains cramped up to trying to retain it all. But the first time I took off in the Citation X, I knew it had been worth the effort. When all the elements I've been studying in a class practicing in the stimulator came together, and I shoved the throttles up and took to the skies in the airplane. What an experience. There was, There's no way to describe it. All I can say is that every cell in my body felt the power, and I knew that I was about to fly far, farther and faster than I ever flown before. That's the way we're all going to feel spiritually once we get the training down and we take off in the revelation of the blessing. But I will warn you, learning to operate in it may at times seem new and different. You may be as startled as I was at first, so to find out that all the blessing we found in the Word, the blessings we we study, believe for, and seen manifest in our lives for, for so many years are not just random, unrelated expressions of God's goodness. They are not just individual gifts He gives us to take care of our needs as they arise. Those blessings are all part of a whole. They are pieces of something bigger and more powerful than anything most of us have ever imagined like parts of a watch that work together as one, each of them, from the new birth to healing to prosperity to the power gift of the Holy Spirit, are all part of a single declaration made by God 6,000 years ago. They are the result of the blessing. The blessing, the one blessing God spoke over Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They are the results of the blessing. The blessing, the one blessing God spoke over Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The one blessing recorded in Genesis 1.28 that set forth God's will for all mankind for all time. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion. With that one blessing, God bestowed on the family of man everything they would ever need to become all he created them to be and do all he had destined them to do. He released the only blessing any of us would ever need. In the following chapter, you'll see how that first blessing 
eventually became the blessing of Abraham. You'll track it down through the generations and see the amazing things that happen to all who receive it. You'll get a clear understanding of how the blessing empowered the true seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, to become the Savior of the world. And you'll realize that as never before, what the Bible means when it says that through him, the blessings have been given to us. Through him, the blessings have been given to us. What the Lord has taught me about the blessing in the past few years has once again sent shockwaves through my spirit. It has changed me as much as the first revelation I received about the blessing of Abraham back in 1967. In the following pages, I will take you through the scripture literally from Genesis to Revelation, showing you what God has shown me about what the blessing is and how it operates. You will see, as I did, that the truth of it spans the whole Bible. Some things you read will shake you up, shake up your thinking. They may even bother you at first. New revelations often do that. They're so uncomfortable at first. Sometimes they even make us mad for a while because they upset our religious traditions. Just the fact that I am writing an entire book about being blessed may ruffle some people's feathers. While I think there's been too much preaching about the Christians being blessed, they'll say, we all gotten too self-centered. Christianity is all about Jesus. It's not about us. Those people do have one thing right. From our perspective as believers, life is all about Jesus. It's all about loving Him, pleasing Him, advancing His kingdom, and giving Him glory. But from Jesus' perspective, it's all about us. He didn't die on the cross to save Himself. He didn't come to earth to fulfill the plan of redemption so He could have abundant life. He came so that we could have it. He became Abraham's seed, not so he could inherit God's promise, but that we could. He did it so the blessing could come on us and through us. All the nations of the earth could be blessed. I realize such statements irritated people who think it's a pious to be poor and beaten down, but that doesn't bother me. I'm used to it. My preaching has irritated a lot of people through the years. Believe it or not, it's part of my God-given calling. Years ago, when I first went into ministry, the Lord spoke to me about the Holy Spirit baptizing church and said, I have a sleeping giant in the earth, and I'm going to wake him up. I thought, that was great. It was all, I was all for it. He finished a sentence, and you're the needle. Lord, why me? I asked, why not? He answered, okay, let's go, I said. Since then, it's happened more times than I can count. I'll be preaching along just enjoying myself when suddenly the needle anointing will come on me and I'll say something that wakes people up. Sometimes they get so mad they want to punch me and other times they're glad. One occasion, preachers will come to me later saying, You made me so angry. I decided to go home and study my Bible until I could prove you wrong. But the more I read, the more I realized you were right. 
what you said was in the Bible all along. It wasn't me that was right. It was the Word. All those preachers were good. God-loving people, most of them had more formal Bible training than I did. But they've been so blinded by their religious mindset, they couldn't see the clear truths of the Word. Their traditions had made the Word of God of no effect. In their lives, the Lord just used to provoke them into looking at the Bible. The Lord used me to provoke them into looking at the Bible with a fresh perspective. When they did, they saw the truth. And the truth made them free. Keep that in mind as you read this book. If some of those things I say needle you, don't just dismiss them and don't take my word for it. Search the word of God for yourself to see if they're true. If the word doesn't confirm them, discard them. If it does, let them make you free. Let the realities of the blessing revolutionize your thinking. Fuel your faith and send you soaring into a new heights of God's will for your life. Now, let's fire up the engines and fly. Chapter 2, The One Thing Sin Couldn't Change Malachi 3.6 says, I am the Lord, I change not. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. There's far too much confusion about the will of God these days. Walk into one church and you'll hear that God's will is to bless His people, to heal, prosper, and pour out His goodness on them in every area of life. Walk into another and you'll hear the exact opposite, that God puts sickness and poverty on His people to teach them lessons, that He leaves them in evil and oppressive situations for a reason only He can understand. Of course, people have their philosophies and fragments of Scripture to back up what they believe. Every group is convinced they are right. So the arguments continue. The confusion remains for no good reason. That's the worst part about it. The entire conflict is unnecessary. The Bible settled the issue for us long ago. It spells out with unmistakably clarity. God's will for all mankind for all time in the very first chapter of the book of in the beginning God made his plan known what's amazing is how we could have missed it for so long isn't it obvious that the creator of mankind would have made it his first order of business to inform this creation called man of his intentions for them of course it is and that's exactly what he did Anyone who has read Genesis 1 can verify it. God was quite clear there in his declaration about man's identity and assignment on earth. He left no doubt about his will for man's environment. He created it to be good in every way. Yes, but all that changed when sin entered the picture, someone might say. 
Without question, sin did change some things. But the one thing it did not change is God. One of the most basic facts of God's nature is that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17 calls Him the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. For I am the Lord, He said in Malachi 3.6, I change not. In West Texas, we say it this way, He ain't about to change. He ain't about to change. What he said in Genesis about his will and purpose for mankind, he meant, period. The devil's plot couldn't change it. The rebellion and failure of Adam could not alter it one iota. Once God has made up his mind and released his word, that's it. When I was a little boy, my father was like that. Once he took a stand on something, as far as he was concerned, the issue was settled. Sometimes I question him about it. Sometimes I try to change his mind. But daddy, I say. Then I start explaining all the reasons he should do things my way. Did you hear what I said the first time he answered? Yes, dad, but what I said the first time still stands. That's the way it is. Do you understand that? Yes, sir, I answered. And that would end the discussion. I knew that no matter how hard I pushed him, when my dad knew he was right and he made his decision, it never changed. Whatever else he said to me on the subject was simply reaffirm his original position. If my natural father could be so unchangeable, how much more unchangeable is our Heavenly Father? After all, he is perfect in all his ways. Every decision he makes is the right one. Every plan he comes up with it the best it can be. Every plan he comes up with is the best it can be. It's impossible to, for him to change. Everything he is and does is right the first time he does it. That's why the best way for us to understand his will for mankind is to go back to the first thing he said about it. The surest method of finding his plan for us today is to travel back in time to see his original plan. Because one thing is sure, God's will for man right now is exactly the same as it ever was. It hasn't changed. Since the day Adam was created, God still means what he said in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Genesis verses, Genesis 1, verses 1, 2, 3. Those familiar verses are more than a biblical history lesson. They set the stage for everything we as believers will ever need to know. They give us the first glimpse of God's purpose and plan for our lives. Not only do they provide us with the basic fact about who created the universe and how, but if we study them in the clear light of scriptural truth, they also tell us the why behind the creation. By telling us God is the creator of the universe and that he initiated by releasing light with his word, those three simple verses 
reveal far more than we realize about the purpose behind it all. For the most part, we miss that revelation. It has slipped past us because in our day, the word God doesn't have much meaning. A generic three-letter word used by all religions, it refers to any deity a person might choose. It uses for Allah or Buddha as well as for the Almighty God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As Christians, we know, of course, that the true God is the God of the Bible. The God in Genesis 1-1 is the one eternal trying God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1-3. But even those titles, though correct, fall short of identity in God. They give us little insight into his nature and character. They do not tell us who he is. The Bible does. However, it describes him in depth and in detail from Genesis to Revelation and in the end sums up in three breathtaking yet simple New Testament words. God is love. 1 John 4, 8. God is love. The Old Testament makes a sense declaration. It says God is full of compassion. Psalm 78, 38, 111, verse 4. It says he is long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. The Lord is gracious. It proclaims and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are all over his works. One day while meditating on the phrase full of compassion, the implications of it exploded in me. It hit me that because God's capacity is infinite, it takes an infinite amount of compassion to fill him up. It takes all the compassion there is. Compassion is not then a feeling or a thing. It is him. The magnitude of God's love is staggering. His love is not the one again his love is not the on-again and off-again kind of love that human beings can offer us. It's not the kind of love that sometimes does you wrong. According to Psalm 145.9, The Lord is always and forever good. The word Lord is capitalized in that verse because it refers to the personal name of God. It is the name he revealed to Moses when he told him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Exodus 3.13 and 14. It is the name he used when he answered Moses' cry to his glory, cry to see his glory, and said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show my mercy on whom I will show my mercy. Exodus 33:19. I will make my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Exodus 33:19. The true pronunciation of the name was lost millennium ago because the Jews held it so sacred they refused to say it out loud. In a vain attempt to translate it, British, British translator re- rendered it Jehovah in English or simply substituted the word Lord. 
But whether or not we can pronounce it, we can be clear about this. God's name is good because he is the good God. He is all the good there is. He is 100% good. There is not one trace of bad in him. A few years ago, I was studying about weather and came across the term absolute zero. That's the term used to describe conditions where there is no heat present whatsoever. At absolute zero, cold is all there is. It's a cold as cold can be. Nothing could be colder because absolute zero is 100% cold. If you could measure it on a thermometer, it would be more than 450 degrees below zero. I experienced 50 degrees below zero one time when I was in the Rocky Mountains and I thought that was seriously cold. But there was still heat in the air. Although I didn't feel it, it was there. When I read about the absolute zero, it occurred to me that God is absolutely good. He is as good as good can be. He is absolute good, absolute love, absolute compassion, absolute mercy, kindness, and long-suffering. His goodness is so all-consuming that bad cannot exist in his presence. That's the reason he had to hide Moses in a cave behind a shield of rock when he let his goodness pass before him. Though a great prophet of God, Moses was still a fallen man, contaminated as all have been since Adam with sin. If God had passed his goodness in front of Moses without protecting him, God's absolute goodness would have burned up the bad in Moses, and he would have made an early exit from the earth. But God didn't let that happen. He did what was necessary to reveal himself to Moses, while at the same time protecting him. His goodness made a way. Now let's look again at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Keeping in mind what we've just seen about who God is, we could also read the verse this way. In the beginning, love created heaven and earth. Or in the beginning, compassion created heaven and earth. Or in the beginning, goodness created heaven and earth. To strike our thinking with maximum impact, we could put them all together and say, In the beginning, the God who is absolute love, compassion, goodness created heaven and earth. We haven't gotten past the first verse of the Bible, and we're already seeing good news. We already learned that compassion made the universe, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if compassion is behind creation, then compassion is the reason for creation. We suddenly know not only that God created all things, we know why. He did it because he needed someone to love. If you know anything about real compassion, you know that's the truth. Compassion can't be satisfied with selfish endeavors. It needs someone to fellowship with, give to, and bless. Compassion needs someone on whom it can pour out its goodness. Compassion needs a family. The fact gives us a whole new perspective in Genesis 1-1. It let us know that the God of love is about to create something for the purpose of love. 
He isn't just making a universe. He is planning a family in whom he can lavish his goodness and preparing a place for the family to live. God didn't design the universe just for his own enjoyment. He already had a fine dwelling place of his own called heaven. He wanted to build a place for his children that was as wonderful and glorious as his own. He wanted a place where he could visit them and where he could eventually go and live with them. So he decided to build one. How did he begin? Verse 3 tells us, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God set things in motion with his word. The New Testament says it this way, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1, 1, 2, 3. Read those verses again, making the scriptural substitutions we made before, and you'll see in them, as we saw in Genesis 1-1, thrilling evidence of what God had in mind at creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with compassion, and the Word was compassion. All things were made by compassion, and without compassion was not anything made that was made. And compassion said, love said, goodness said, light be. Think of it. Love's word created the universe. The earth, the heavens, and everything in them were created by love. With love for the purpose of love. That revelation alone wipes out a lot of the lies that religion has sold us. In a most literal way, God built his family a home out of his own love. He brought forth out of his own essence and glory a place that would reflect his all-consuming desire to bless the family, that family and surround them with goodness. And he did it by saying, Light be. The English translation of the Bible renders that phrase, Let there be light. But that translation is weaker than the original text. Let there be light could leave the impression that God was just making plans out loud. That he was saying, hmm, let's have some light. The original Hebrew is shorter and more forceful. It reveals the universe exploding into existence as God's direct command. God said, light be and light was. Why is that so important for us not to know? Why does God consider revealing to us his method of creation so vital that he includes it in the third verse of the Bible? Because he's about to bring forth a family of creators made in his image, and this divine method of calling those things which be not as though they were is a crucial part of his will and plan for them. It's no coincidence that Genesis 1 tells us again and again that God said, and it was so. Like all good teachers, God teaches by repetition. So for the sake of his students, the sons and daughters, who would one day follow his example, he left no room for doubt. He saw to it that the brief summary of creation in this all-important first book of the Bible 
would remind us over and over that to bring forth the firmament from the waters, God said, and it was so. To gather the waters together and let the dry land appear, God said, and it was so. To bring forth plant life, God said, and it was so. To release the light of the sun, moon, and stars, God said, and it was so. To fill the sea with living creatures, God said, and God saw that it was good. To bring forth animals from the earth, God said, and it was so. Speaking is clearly God's creative method. He created and upholdeth all things by the word of his power. God doesn't just blurt out meaningless babble like people so often do. He doesn't use words lightly. He pours himself into his words. He fills them with faith and spiritual substance. When God said, like be, he did more than utter a simple phrase. He set a massive plan in motion. With those words, the Almighty released enough power to cause the universe to explode into being. He released the power of life. How significant was the force called light? Far more significant than we realize. The light God spoke for on the first day of creation wasn't just visible illumination. It wasn't a kind of night light that lit up the darkness so God could see what he was doing. It wasn't sunshine or moonlight. According to Genesis 1, 14-19, the sun and moon were not created until the fourth day. What was it then that God released one day on that day one? It was the light of his own glory, the essence of God himself, of his presence and his substance. If you're wondering how I got that information, you'll be happy to know I got it from the Bible. It tells us plainly that God is light. It's, it says he is our light and our salvation. It caused the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect expression of the fullness of God, the true light which lighted every man that cometh into the world. John 1 9. If the Bible means what it says, and it does, light is more than just a quality God possesses. It is who He is. It is His very nature, just as God is love, God is light. Both Old and New Testament scriptures confirm it by describing God's appearance in terms of fire, lightning, or some other form of light. In the wilderness, when God led the Israelites by His presence, he is described as a pillar of fire to give them light. When God cut the covenant with Abraham, he appeared as a burning lamp that passed between the pieces of the sacrificial animals. The psalmist, God revealed himself as the one who covered himself with light as with a, a garment. Psalms 104.2 In Ezekiel's vision, Chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. 
God had the appearance of a man with fire round about from the appearance of his loins even upward and from the appearance of his loins even downward. The appearance of fire and it had brightness round about it. When the prophet Habakkuk saw him, his brightness was like the light. He had rays lighting like splendor flashing from his hand and there his powers were hidden. Habakkuk 3.4 On the day of Pentecost when God poured his spirit out on the early disciples there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. Acts 2.3 When the apostle John received the revelation and saw God in his throne he saw lightning and fire around him. Revelations 4.5 In John's vision of the New Testament, the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Revelation 21, 23. From Genesis to Revelation, God is light. So using scripture to interpret scripture, we can assume that in Genesis 1, 3, when God said, light be, he actually released his own substance light into the void that was space. He released himself, his own creative, glorious, compassionate, life-filled glory. That's one of the Bible's words for it. And that glory became the envelope for the universe. It made a kind of container in which all material things began to form. The planets, the stars, the oceans, and every other natural element. In other words, God's glory light became the basis of all matter. What do you know about it? Someone might ask. You're a preacher, not a scientist. Yes, but if you ask scientists who are brave enough to give you an honest answer, they'll tell you much the same thing because science has been catching up with the Bible in recent years. Researchers and physicists physicists experts who have the integrity to admit it are acknowledging that the universe began as a result of a mass massive explosion of electromagnetic radiation light and has been expanding ever since that radiant energy which includes not only light waves visible to the human eye but also those that are invisible became the substance of all material things Science now acknowledges that what the Bible has told us for thousands of years is true light. Light was the original force of the universe and continues to be the ultimate power of all creation. Do you realize what that means? It means that God, who is light, compassion himself, used his own glory to make this planet. It means that even before the foundations of the world, God loved us so much that he decided to build a dwelling place for us out of every, out of the very substance of his own love-filled, light-filled nature. When God said, light be, he did more than ignite the Big Bang that would set the universe in motion. He released the very essence of himself into this material creation because he wanted the family he was about to create to be eternally surrounded with 100% absolute good. 
He wanted us to be surrounded by His own glory and to be able to say with joy, In Him we live and move and have our being. Acts 17, 28. If that doesn't light your spiritual fire, my friend, your wood is wet. On the sixth day of creation, everything was ready. The heavens and earth were complete and all of the preliminaries finished. So God went to work on the first member of his family. He prepared to create a man. The first thing he did was form a body out of the dust of the ground. Sometimes people say God created man from dirt, but that's incorrect. God fashioned the man's body from the dust, not the man himself. Once the body was formed, God created the man the same way he created everything else. God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fall of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Genesis 1, 26, verse 27. 1, chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Here again, the English translation is weaker than the Hebrew text. It almost gives us the sense that God was just making plans out loud. That he was saying, I have an idea, let's make a man in our image. But in reality, God didn't create anything that way. He didn't make anything on a whim just to see how it would turn out. He had everything planned to the minute's detail before he started. When God made the planets and stars, he did it according to the blueprint already formed within him. When he formed the sea creatures, the birds and the animals, he made each one according to the pattern he he designed beforehand. When he created man, he did it the same way, with one outstanding difference. Instead of making man from an original design, God used himself as the pattern. See verses 26 and 27. When God created man, he actually copied himself. He didn't decide to do that at the last minute either. He had made the decision to create mankind in his image before the foundations of the world. The Bible says that God even had the plan of redemption mapped out and accomplished in his own mind back then. It says that we as believers... We're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversations received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundations of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. 1 Peter 1, 18-20 What a planner. Long before God said, let us make man in our image, he had already created in his heart and mind every human being who would ever be born. He had already foreseen the fact that the devil would tempt Adam and they would sin. 
Before the universe began, God has settled it in his own heart that he would restore all that would be shattered through their rebellion. He and Jesus had already agreed that Jesus would go to the cross and pay the price for the redemption of their family. God also knew way back then, all who would one day receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, he saw us in his heart before we ever exited and chose us before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Ephesians 1.4 As a result from before the beginning, God has seen every born-again believer as made perfectly in his image, and he still sees us that way today. He never accepted that old sinful image of us that the devil conjured up. He never saw us old dirty dog sinners throughout the ages. God has maintained the inner image of us he had in his heart from the first. Therefore, it is clear that God wasn't just coming up with a good idea when he said, let us make man. He was giving the command that would bring forth what he had already planned. He was releasing his power through his word and bringing his family to life. He did it in the same way he had in Genesis 1-3 when he said, Light be, he said, man be in our image after our likeness and have dominion. The Bible, as human beings... We can repeat those words in just a few seconds, but it may well have taken God all day to say them because he poured himself completely into them. He filled them with the totality of his life, his spirit and his faith. He injected into them what we might call his divine DNA. And with those words, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. The Bible doesn't give the details surrounding the event, but I firmly believe that that moment of hush fell over all creation. Not a bird sang, not a bee buzzed, not a breath of wind fluttered through the trees. The entire universe stood in rapt silence, transfixed by what was about to happen. All creation waited in awe as Almighty God, the Master master creator of the universe brought forth the family he had planned and chosen before the foundations of the world. No created being in heaven or on earth had ever witnessed such a scene, and it must have seemed inconceivable to all who watch. Could it really be that God was about to duplicate himself in this creature called man? Multitudes upon multitudes of angels gathered to see the event. Why wouldn't they? They've been created to serve this family God was about to bring forth. They must have wanted to see who they were supposed to be helping. They must have wanted to see for themselves this divine race whose future existence has already triggered a devastating heavenly war. The war took place before man was ever created. When Lucifer, the chief musician and most gorgeous angel ever created, the archangel over all music and worship decided he didn't want to minister as a servant, 
to mankind. He didn't want to use the anointing and talent that God had given him to bring lovingness, peace, and joy to this family that was about to be created in God's image. Instead of serving, Lucifer wanted to be served. So he turned against his creator, convinced a third of the heavenly host to join him and try to imitate God. Using God's own creative method, he attempted to use his words to bring forth a new reality. He said, I will ascend into heaven, and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Isaiah 14, 13, and 14. Unlike the man God was planning to create, however, Lucifer wasn't made in God's image. He didn't have the right to choose his own words and call things that be not as though they were. His declaration was illegal. So rather than raising him up, it brought him down. The very anointing God had put within him turned against him and removed him from his position. When that happened, Lucifer, now known as Satan, gathered up the angels who joined in his rebelling and attacked heaven. It was the biggest mistake he ever made. He and the angels who followed him ended up getting thrown down out of heaven and into nothingness. They were stripped of all rights from that day to this. They haven't owned anything or belonged anywhere. They eventually stole the authority of man, invaded this planet, and because what we know today as the principalities, powers, and rulers of darkness of this world. But the fact is, they're the lowest form of spirit life on this planet. I'm jumping ahead a little, but I can't pass up the opportunity to say those fall, fallen spirits don't have any business in a human body. They don't have any business bothering a human mind. They don't belong on the earth, and their time here is rapidly running out. When it's gone, they'll never be back again. In the meantime, don't let them get away with anything in your life. And the next time someone asks if you think they are aliens on the earth, say, yeah, they're called devils and demons, and I cast them out every day. Surely, with a heavenly war just behind them and God at center stage of the universe breathing out or spiriting his word of life into this man around whom the whole conflict had centered, every angel in heaven crowded around watching it all. When God said, Man, be in our image and have dominion, every angel on hand must have been pondering the question posed in Psalms 8. When I consider the heavens, the works of the fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man, that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man, that thou visited him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hand, Thou hast put all things under his feet. Verses 3 and 6.
The Lord allowed me one day during a season of prayer to see in a vision what happened when man was created. I've not had many visions this dramatic in detail, so it marked my thinking forever. In my spirit, I saw God standing up, holding Adam's body in front of him. The first thing I noticed was that they were the same size. Adam's form was just like God, except it was limp and grayish looking. It didn't have much color to it. When God spoke to Adam, he spoke right into his face. He didn't blow into his mouth to get life into him. He just stood face to face with him. God's nose was right in front of Adam's nose. His mouth level with Adam's. His eyes, the eyes of compassion himself, looking into Adam's eyes, seemed to be pouring into him everything God is. All his love, light, life, goodness, and mercy were being infused into this man. God was merging. God was merging into Adam, his very being. Adam didn't hear the first words God spoke to him because he wasn't yet alive. But once those words entered him, they did their creative work. And as the Bible says, man became a living soul. The Hebrew commentaries put it this way. He became a living speaking spirit like God. A living speaking spirit like God. As a living speaking spirit like God, man had the same power to speak that God himself had. He was full of God's own faith and had the authority to speak creative, compassionate words and exercise dominion with them. Born of God's word and created in exact likeness, man was loved just like God is loved. Man was like just like God is like. Man was full of compassion just like God is full of compassion. Man was life just as God is life. The only difference between man and God was this. Unlike God, who is eternally sovereign and independent, man was dependent on God. In all other ways, God made man. God and man were so exactly alike that when the angels saw God and Adam together for the first time, they must have thought they were seen double. What a shock it must have been to see the eternal Almighty God in all his radiant light and glory, standing face to face with someone who looked just like him, someone who had the same radiant and the same fiery presence, someone who was, as we say in my part of the country, the spitting image of God, the spitting image. Although the term is a colloquialism, in this case, it is the literal truth. One theory is that its original frame from the phrase spirit. One theory is that it originated from the phrase spirit and image. And that's exactly what Adam was. He was the spirit and image of God himself. He wasn't just a little like God. He was exactly like him. He didn't contain a part of God. He contained everything God is. He was absolutely filled with God. The fact alone must have stunned the angelic watchers before they even had time to gasp in awe at that night at the sight. However, God did something more. 
something that would once again spark a battle, not in the realms of heaven, but on planet Earth. God crowned, crowned this family of man he had created with glory and honor. He made them to have dominion over the works of his hands and put all things under their feet. God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fall of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Genesis 128. Those words of blessing marked the coronation of mankind. They were the first words Adam ever heard. They were the most important words God had ever spoken to any man at any time because they carried within them God's unchanging plan and purpose for his family. They settled once and for all. The eternal truth that God's will for man is the blessing. The end of chapter 2. Chapter 3, Project Eden, Filling the Earth with the Glory of God. The blessing of the Lord, it make rich, and he added no sorrow with it. Proverbs 10, 22. The word blessing has been so stripped of its meaning that most people pay no attention to it anymore. Even though it represents the most important concept in the Bible and reveals God's will for all mankind, the world has trivialized it into little more than a courtesy comment made when someone sneezes. Achoo! God bless you. People say it all the time without any idea of what it means. Even believers who give the phrase more thought because of its scriptural nature are often confused by it because it is thrown around in such casual and contradictory ways. On one hand, they hear things like sickness, poverty, and calamity referred to as blessings in disguise. While on the other hand, Help, prosperity, and protection are called blessings too. It's no wonder that for all practical purposes, the real definition of the word blessing has been lost. Religious double speak has turned it into a term that changes color according to the circumstance around it with no clear meaning of its own. In reality, however, the word blessing has a definite and distinctive identity. Its primary biblical meaning is to say something good about. In Hebrews, a blessing is the exact opposite of a curse, which means to say something bad about. The Jews, who were the original readers of the Bible, completely understood that that fact. They didn't have the problem many Christians do. They never got blessings and curses mixed up. They knew if it's Good, it's a blessing. If it's bad, it's a curse. You can never convince a Jewish person who knew the Old Testament things like poverty and sickness were blessings. If you said to him, you're going to be sick and broke for the rest of your life, and God is going to use that illness and poverty to teach you something, 
he would think you be blessed. You have blessed him. He knows you. He wouldn't think you had blessed him. He knows you have cursed him. Most Christians today have been robbed of such clarity. Their minds have been muddled by man-made doctrines so ridiculous. They never believe them outside of church. Instead of having their minds washed with the water of the, of the word, they've been brainwashed by tradition into believing that God actually sends bad things into their lives to bless them. I lost my job and went broke, they say. That was when the Holy Spirit was finally able to teach me to put God first in my life. That proves poverty can sometimes be a blessing of the Lord. Such statements may sound spiritually, but they're just plain wrong. Going broke is never a blessing. It's a curse. Certainly, it's great to learn lessons from God. It's exciting to find out that if you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew 6.33 Poverty isn't what teaches us the truth. If it did, every person in the world would be spiritually giant. No, the good thing God said in His Word especially verses like Matthew 6.33, are what teaches us to put God first. When we read and obey these verses, we can learn that lessons without having to lose a dime. And that's what the Bible calls blessing. The Hebrew definition of the word good gives us further reproof what a blessing is. It's purely positive thing. It includes beautiful, best, better, bountiful, joyful, Kind, loving, merry, pleasant, prosperity, sweet, well, and to be well. Since that list does not include even one negative word, we can put behind us forever the idea that sorrowful, unpleasant, bitter things can be a blessing. It is totally unscriptural. That truth by itself will make us free, but there's another meaning for the word blessing that's even more exciting. It's a definition that comes into play when God gets involved, when he is the one speaking. A blessing is defined as not only saying something good about someone, but as a declaration which empowers them to prosper. Because God's word carries creative power as seen throughout Genesis 1, his blessing does more than express a positive sentiment. It releases the power to bring that blessing to pass. That's the reason the blessing God spoke over mankind in Genesis one twenty eight is so significant. God's declaration actually empowered man to prosper. It releases the divine resource that would make the blessing not just a spiritual reality, but a material reality as well. It endued God's family on earth with all the power they would ever need to. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fall of the earth and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Go and finish what I started. Contrary to popular belief, when God spoke those words of blessing, he wasn't just commanding Adam and his wife to have babies to populate the earth. He was saying much more than that. In Hebrew, 
The phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to increase and have abundance in every way. Replenish means to fill up, to perpetually renew, supply, and keep full. When God spoke those words, he endowed mankind with the divine power to increase and excel in everything good. He empowered them to fill the earth with the blessing, with that goodness. Through the blessing, he said, prosper and fill this planet with my glory. Finish what I started here. Fill this place up with me. Fill it up with compassion. Fill it up with love and life, faith and holiness and everything good. Wait a minute, you might say. I thought the earth was already finished when Adam and Eve were created. I thought God had done everything that needs to be done. That's what I thought too until I studied what the Bible actually says about it. Like most believers, I assume for years that God has so thoroughly completed the planet that all Adam and Eve had to do was pluck ripe fruit from the trees and enjoy themselves. I figure that because the Garden of Eden was perfect place, there must not have been much work for them to do. That would have been true if the garden had covered the whole earth, but it didn't. Although it was a good-sized piece of property, according to the scripture given in Genesis, it was only about the size and in the general location of modern-day Iraq. The Bible tells us that God himself planted it. Eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made the, the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is, which compasses the whole land of Habilah, where there is gold, and the gold of the land is good. There is Belium of the onyx stone, and the, the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is that compasses the whole land of Ethiopia, and the name of the third river is Hidekel. It is which goeth toward the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Genesis 2, 8-15 By anyone's standard, the Garden of Eden was massive, and it was without a doubt an exquisite place to live. Filled with gorgeous trees that provided food fit for a king, it had a river running through it to keep it lush and green, plenty of gold, good gold, the Bible says, and other precious stones. It was indeed a blessed place, full of everything good and nothing bad. The rest of the earth, however, was not in the same condition. God had created it with plenty of potential, but it had not yet been cultivated. It still needed to be developed and brought into line with God's perfect will. That's why he included in the blessing the power to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. To attain the untamed earth needed supervision and direction. It wasn't yet finished. God could have done the job himself. He could have turned the whole planet into a Garden of Eden in an hour. 
but he had something else in mind. He wanted it to be a family project, to watch his sons and daughters become his co-creators and finish out the planet. So he gave them the Garden of Eden as the pilot project to get them started. God's plan was for them to expand it until the earth became the garden spot of the universe. Once earth was finished, they could go to work on the rest of the planet. I'm convinced that's why there are so many barren, empty planets out there. God made them to be future sites for his family to develop. No wonder human beings dream of exploring the galaxy. No wonder we figure out a way to go to the moon and send spaceships to Mars. We were created to take dominion over the universe and fill every square inch of it with the glory of God. Not just weed pullers. Because God created mankind in his image by his word of dominion, Adam and sense within himself the desire for dominion the moment he took his first breath. From the beginning, ruling and reigning was part of his DNA. He wasn't just a weed puller in the Garden of Eden. Someone once said there those very words to me, referring to Adam as God's weed puller. I had to exercise great restraint to keep from telling him what an ignorant statement that was. In the first place, there was no weeds in the Garden of Eden. If there had been, God would have pulled them himself before he put Adam there. In the second place, and this is much more important, God didn't create Adam to be a servant of the earth. He made him to be Lord over it. I realize that idea make religious people nervous. But I don't apologize for it. It upset people in Jesus' day too. The religious people wanted to kill him for speaking and acting like he had dominion of the earth. When he called God his father and operated in the blessing by using the same authority the first Adam had before the, he fell, it aggravated the Pharisees to no end. But he didn't back down to make them feel better. Instead, he said, It is not written in your law, I said. You are God's. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, say you O him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world. Thou blasphemy because I said I am the Son of God, John 10, 34 and 36. Jesus left no doubt about man's authority over the earth. He said that when God spoke his word of dominion into mankind, he made us gods, little g, over all that he had created. He gave us authority over everything that flies, walks, crawls, swims, and creeps. I'm especially grateful creeps are included in the, the list because flu, viruses, and cold germs qualify as creeps. So when you try to get, they get on me, I can use my God-given authority to get rid of them. Well, I'm just not convinced I can operate in that kind of dominion. Brother Copeland, most of the time, I feel more like a weed puller than a, a lord. This may be true, but if you're honest, you admit that even while you're pulling weeds, you're longing for dominion. I know that's true because every human being on earth has that longing. Dominion is woven into our very nature. God breathed it into our spirits one day. That's the reason human beings are always trying to exercise dominion over something 
It's the reason why children invent games like King of the Mountain. Even little children have an innate, innate desire to reign. I remember when Alex, one of my granddaughters, discovered that desire. She wasn't much more than a toddler at that time. My son John, her dad, told her to do something, and when it became apparent she wasn't going to follow his instructions, John said, Alex, you need to obey me. Why do I have to obey you, she asked. Because I'm the boss, he answered. Alex looked at him for a while and gave that some thought. Then, I want to be boss, she announced. Alex, like all human beings, wanted to be in charge. That's the way mankind is wired. We are all created to be bosses on this planet. We are divinely designed to reign. But as Alex soon found out, it's one thing to have a desire to reign. It's another to be equipped to do it. The desire without the equipment leads to frustration. Try as we may to exercise dominion, and we don't have the power and resources to get the job done. Our efforts will fail. See how important it is to, to be equipped for dominion. Consider how Jesus transferred his authority to his disciples after his death and resurrection. He did it in two parts. First, he gave them the great commission and told them what to do. He said, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen to 20 That commission authorized the disciples to preach the gospel worldwide. It instilled in them the desire to do so, but that alone was not enough. They also needed to be empowered or equipped to walk in that authority. So Jesus commanded them to wait in Jerusalem for part two, the promise of the Father. He said to them, You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts 1.8 The fiery power that came on the disciples at Pentecost the outpouring of power we call the baptism in the Holy Spirit is what equips the disciples to fulfill the mission Jesus gave them. It empowered them to go into all the world, operate in dominion over all the works of the devil, and advance the kingdom of God. It provided them with the same kind of power Adam received when God declared over him the words of Genesis one twenty eight. It releases to it releases to them the blessing our demand mandate i can almost hear you thinking what does the baptism in the holy spirit have to do with the blessing adam received in the garden of eden it has everything to do with it and you'll eventually see the connection but for now let's turn our attention back to the garden of eden let's see adam again in our minds i as we saw him in chapter 1 in his first split second of life standing face to face with God in the center of the world stage about to receive his mandate from God.
Mandate is a term often used in the political realm to refer to that which is a government official has been commissioned to accomplish. A president with a mandate from the people to protect the nation is authorized and empowered by that mandate. It gives him not only the responsibility for national defense, but it also puts the military resources of the country under his command. The blessing was Adam's divine mandate. It delivered to him both the responsibility and the resources to fill the earth with God's goodness. It gave him a divine commission and crowned him with all the divine power he needed to fulfill it. When God spoke the blessing over Adam, Psalms 8.5 says, He crowned him with glory and honor. Normally, we think of a crown, we picture a circle of gold set on a person's head. But in Adam's case, the Bible says God crowned Adam by putting his own glory on him. He didn't just dab a little circle of it over him as a kind of a halo. But the original Hebrew says God encircled or encompassed Adam in that glory. Just imagine it. Adam's eardrums were still vibrating with the first sound he ever heard, the sound of Almighty God saying, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. When suddenly he was engulfed by the blazing light of divine glory. He was lit up completely with the fire of God. It shone around him from the inside out, so he was totally encompassed by it. <clears throat> That's why Adam didn't need material clothing. Although they were both naked, the man and his wife, they were not ashamed because they weren't naked in the sense that we understand it. They weren't exposed. They were, they were clothed with the radiant glory of God. They couldn't even see their physical bodies when they looked at themselves and each other what they saw was the glorious fire of God glistening with ever color in existence. <clears throat> Not only did the glory clothe them with God's light and beauty, it filled them with, to overflowing with his very essence. It enveloped them in his presence, power, wisdom, and love. The blessing crowned Adam and his wife with the same light energy God used to make the earth. It endued them with the divine power that created the universe. The earth and everything in it, it is a design to respond to that power. <clears throat> every tree and blade of grass, every living thing on the earth and under the sea recognizes and yields to the blessing because it is the parent force from which they originate. <clears throat> the moment Adam and his wife received that blessing, all creation was under their command. They were totally equipped to fulfill their God-given missions. They had both the authority and the power to exercise dominion over the earth. Crowned with the manifestation of God's glory unique to the universe, they had as much right to use the, that power as God did. They had just as much divine ability to fill up the earth as God had to created it. <clears throat> Once they had received the blessing, they had everything they needed to spread the dominion of compassion, the kingdom of God, into every corner of the earth. They were fully empowered to reign over the whole planet 
and every living creature in it by the power of love. I realize that the thought of reigning through love is a novel idea these days. The devil has twisted most people's minds to the point they equate dominion with control. They think the only way to rule is with an iron fist. But God never intended man to to dominate his creation that way. He didn't mean for mankind to subdue it with brute force. He planned for them to love this planet into submission, to shine the light of divine compassion on it, and speak words of kindness, gentleness, and goodness to it until the entire place blossom into perfection. Cynics might claim such a thing would never work, but it does work. I've seen it time and time again, not just in my own life, but in the lives of others. My dad, for example, caught hold of this truth many years ago and put it into practice with great success. He didn't have a full revelation of the blessing, but he knew he be- and believed the words in Deuteronomy 28. He understood that his land and everything on it was blessed, and therefore it was supposed to prosper. So when parasites infested the groves of oak trees in his yard and started to kill them, my dad took a stand. He refused to give up on those trees, even though the experts told him, Mr. Copeland, we have no answer for this problem. You'll just have to accept the fact that these trees are going to die. No, they're not, he answered. Then he went into the house, got his Bible, and walked around the yard reading Deuteronomy 28 to all of his trees. He went to each of them and said, You are not going to die. You are on my property. You are blessed. You will live and flourish in the name of Jesus. Sure enough, every tree in that yard not only survived, but flourished. That was just a coincidence, someone might say. No, it wasn't. I got the same results by talking to a tree that was in even worse shape than his. Gloria and I planted it because we were living in a tiny house on a block where there wasn't a tree in sight. We wanted to beautify the place a little, so we got a tree that was just a couple of feet tall and stuck it right in the middle of our front lawn. The problem was we were gone a lot of the time, so we couldn't tend to it much. When we were home, we water it and nurse it along, but even so, it started to die. A few months after we planted it, we came home from a meeting and every leaf had fallen off the tree. It looked like a broom handle sticking out of the ground. I started to pull it up and throw it away, but for some reason I thought, I don't believe I'll do that. I'm going to let the devil kill the only tree I have. I'm not going to let the devil kill every tree, the only tree I have. I believe I'll use what I've been learning about the blessing. Instead, when I told Gloria about it, she jumped right on board. Why don't you start by praying over the tree in tongues, I said. Okay, she answered and went after it. I'm telling you that. Woman can pray in tongues. She had prayed in tongues an hour or a day for more than 20 years. She can get the job done. After she finished and went in the house, I got my Bible and sat down in front of the tree with it sticking up between my knees. 
Hey, tree, you are not going to die, I said. I'm not going to let you die. I speak life to you. I speak the blessing of God over you. I speak the love of God and the power of God over you. After I talked to it for a while, my head started reasoning. People in this neighborhood already think you are strange. Now they have absolute proof. They're all looking out their windows at you and saying, that idiot is talking to a tree. I refuse to let it bother me. Though I said to myself, I'll talk to whom or whatever I please. It's my tree and I'll preach an entire sermon to it if I want to. So I kept on talking and dragged the, the hose around to squirt some water on it. Days passed and the tree still looked as bad as it ever had. Gloria and I would leave town and come back and there it would be just as pitiful looking stick barely clinging to life. I was tempted to give up. Maybe that tree is so far gone it can't hear me, I thought. But I just couldn't go for that. Though I didn't know as much about the blessing back then as I do now, I still expect it to work, so I just kept talking and talking and talking to the tree. After a while, God blessed Gloria and me with a nicer house, and we moved. <clears throat> Years went by without a thought about the little tree. Then one day, the Lord reminded me about it, and I decided to drive by and take a look at it. You should have seen how it had grown. It covered half the yard and a third of the neighbors. It has blossomed out all over. I learned something from that experience. I learned that to operate in the blessing, you just speak the word, say about things what God says about them. <clears throat> then just go about your business and expect those things to come to pass. That's what Adam and his wife were originally supposed to do. That's how God meant for them to exercise dominion over the earth by speaking God's word in love. It would have worked. Two, even though they didn't have a Bible, though they didn't even know good from evil, if they had chosen to stick with God's original program, the blessing itself would have been taught them what to say. It would have revealed to them everything they need to know about exercising dominion. Because the blessing includes not only the glory and power of God, but the person and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. It would have guided the first man and woman into all truth. They didn't have to struggle along on their own and learn everything by trial and error. They didn't have to sin to find out what evil was. They could have just let the anointing of God teach them about it. That's what Jesus did during his life on earth. That's what Jesus did during his life on earth. He grew in the wisdom of God until he understood all there is to know about good and evil. Without every blessing, without ever violating God's commands, Adam could have done the same thing if he had just obeyed God and stayed connected to the blessing. He would have had continual continue access to the wisdom of God. And with that wisdom reign on earth as a 
as a compassionate king until the whole planet flourished under his care. For a very short while, that's exactly what Adam did. His first day on the job, for example, he used the power of the blessing to direct the future course of the entire animal kingdom. God brought to him every species to see what he, he would call them and whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the same name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fall of the air. And to every beast of the field, Genesis twenty-eight nineteen twenty. 20. <clears throat> to understand the significance of these verses, you must remember that to God, a name is everything. As far as he is concerned, whatever a thing is called is what it becomes. Since the animals had no names, they had no directions for life. They did not yet have a unique and definite function. So God brought them to Adam and left them, let him try his hand at bringing love, life, and purpose to them. He let Adam determine the character and the chart, the behavior of every bird and bug and everything that creeps and crawls and swims. What a massive task. Just think of Adam standing alongside Imagine Adam saying, Elephant B, and the animal answering in response, Thank you very much, sir. And he walks away, a living, breathing elephant with personality and purpose. What a massive task. Just think of Adam standing alongside God, studying a bulky, baffling-looking creature and drawing on God's wisdom to determine what to call it. Imagine Adam saying, Elephant B, and the animal answering in response, Thank you very much, sir. And as he walked away, a living, breathing elephant with personality and purpose. Brother Copeland, do you actually think that animals talk? I don't know. The Bible doesn't specifically say. But they might have before sin entered the picture and messed up everything. It's and messed up everything. It it is interesting to note that when the serpent talked to Eve in the garden, she didn't express any surprise. She conversed with him as if were or a normal thing too. Whether or not the animal Talk. However, one thing is certain, they all drew their purpose and character from what Adam spoke over them. How did he know what to say in the situation? How did he manage to give directions to every creature on earth without any prior training? He did it by drawing the blessing. He did it by drawing on the divine energy, wisdom, and love that crowned him throughout the whole earth. Adam was pulling by faith. And his ability, and on his father's ability, God creative, God's creativity and compassion were flowing into him, and then out from him into creation. Adam didn't didn't just pull out a hat; he drew them out of love himself. He was loving the birds as they flew to meet him, 
He was loving the animals as they came and blessing them all just as God had blessed him. Amen, amen. Thank you, Jesus. At that moment, Adam was standing in the center of God's perfect will for mankind. He was in absolute unity and fabulous fellowship with his heavenly Father. He was surrounded by God's goodness and plentiful provision, living in a sinless, sickness-free, marvelous, abundant life. What's more, he had a worldwide vision and the power to carry it out. He had an international ministry, a divine calling to multiply, be fruitful, and fill the earth with the same abundant life God had given him. Commissioned to build God's family and expand the Garden of Eden until it filled the earth, Adam was on a mission to encompass the world with the glorious blessing of God, divine connection. Life just doesn't get any better than that. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heaven and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Genesis 31 and chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Once the blessing had been released on Adam, God retired. He rested not because he was tired, but because he was finished. He had completed his work on the universe, poured himself into mankind, crowned them with his creative power, and given them total authority over the earth. There was nothing more for him to do having turned everything over to his family of sub-creators. God intended to relax, fellowship with his sons and daughters, and enjoy the thrill of watching them develop planet Earth in the most marvelous garden anyone has ever seen. When they finished it, he planned to move his heavenly headquarters to Earth and make it his home, so he could dwell there with his family forever. When you think about it, the fact that God rested on the seventh day, that he actually ended his work and retired, is outstanding. As we already noted, Adam and his wife were still novices in every way at that time. They had no dominion experience. They never subdued a planet before. Yet God was so confident they could get the job done. He just leaned back, put up his feet, and said, I'm finished. Family, now is your turn to build me a home. How could God put such confidence in them? Because he had confidence in the divine connection. He had given them the blessing. And that blessing is divinely designed to create the conditions of the Garden of Eden. It's God-ordained purpose is to provide mankind with everything they need to fill the earth with God's glory. Whenever the blessing is released, it goes to work bringing things into line with the love of God. It goes to work making everything good.
If you want to know, the blessing knows to do that. If you want to know how, the blessing knows to do that. I tell you, God programmed it that way, just like he programmed the ground to make things grow. The ground treats everything like a seed. Put a fence post in the ground and the dirt will go to work decomposing it. It will start gnawing at the fence post like it would gnaw on the husk of an acorn. It will completely rot the bottom of that post trying to open it up to see the thing that can sprout. Bury an old shoe and the dirt will do the same thing to it because that's what God programmed the dirt to do. You can see the same pattern throughout creation. Apple seeds bring forth apple trees because they carry inside the genetic image of apple trees. Watermelon seeds produce watermelon vines because they're designed by God to do so. Animals reproduce according to the DNA they receive from their parents. The golden retriever puppy, for example, that Gloria and I got for our sons when he was a little boy, was a retriever from the start. No one had to teach him to run after things. When he was only a few weeks old, we'd pitch something across the yard and he'd run after it. We'd throw a stick into the lake and he'd jump in and start swimming. He couldn't help it. Retrieving was just in him. The blessing is the same way. It carries with it the blueprint of the Garden of Eden. It's designed by God to reproduce that garden by empowering God's family to be fruitful, prosper, and walk in dominion on the earth. When it is released by faith, that's what it does every time, all the time. So once the blessing was in place, God rested. He didn't just rest for 24 and go back to work again. When Adam sinned, he is still resting today. That doesn't mean he is inactive. It simply means he hasn't changed his mind. He hasn't altered his plan. He has given his word that his family is blessed and he is resting, assured that the power of the blessing will bring his word to pass in spite of everything hell tries to do. Once you understand that fact, you'll begin to understand in a much clearer way everything else the Bible says. You'll begin to realize everything God has spoken to and for mankind from Genesis to Revelations has been in relation to those first words he said to Adam 6,000 years ago. Everything he has done has been for one central purpose, to get the blessing back where it belongs.
Chapter 4. The day the lights went out. Romans 5, 17, verses 17 and 21 say, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. That as a sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Has it not been for the devil and man's cooperation with him, the Bible could have been a very short book. It could have ended with Genesis 2. Any scriptural records written after that would have been filled with stories about God, his family, laughing together, loving each other, and co-creating throughout eternity. Stories about how everyone except Satan and his crew lived happily ever after. Had it not for the devil, we would never have seen the serious side of God. For years, I thought that was the only side God had. I thought he was 100% serious. I've seen so much bawling and squalling religion and been around so many people who thought that if you're not crying and emotionally distraught, you're not getting anything from God. I just figured he had a solemn temperament. I knew that he is gracious enough to put up with us when we're lighthearted and having fun. But I had the idea he wasn't a fun kind of a person himself. One morning some years ago, however, I discovered I was wrong. During a time of prayer, I broke through into a spirit of praise and started enjoying the presence of God so much that I forgot about myself and got giddy. I started giggling, laughing, hollering, and jumping around. And right in the middle of it all, the devil broke in on me. Do you have any idea how dumb you look right now, he said. I had to admit, I didn't look very dignified or religious, and for a split second I was tempted to feel sheepish. Then the story of David flashed across my mind. I remember how he got so carried away once when he was praising the Lord that he leaped and danced and threw off his robe right in the middle of the street. He embarrassed his wife so much that she accused him of being vulgar. But David didn't care. He answered by saying, I am willing to act like a fool in order to show my joy in the Lord. Yes, I am willing to look even more foolish than this. That just means, woman, you ain't seen nothing yet. Following David's example, I ignored what the devil had said to me. I just shouted louder and kept on rejoicing. When I did, I heard the word of the Lord in my spirit. He spoke to me in a strong, sweet voice that on the inside of me was audible and said, Can it, if it hadn't been for sin, I, would, I never would have a serious thought. <clears throat> that statement came as a shock to me. It so contradicted the tradition concept of God that I wasn't sure if I would believe it. The more I thought about it, the more sense it made. It dawned on me that, according to the Bible, heaven is the place where God's will is done. And there isn't anything in heaven to be serious about. There's no bitterness, there's no sorrow there, no danger, no death. In a place like that, you can just have fun all the time. But Brother Copeland, this is hurt, you might say. There's lots here to be serious about. I know it, but that doesn't change God's nature. It doesn't make him any less a joyful, fun-loving father. It doesn't change him, his will either. He wants his will done on earth as it is in heaven, Matthew 6.10. 
No wonder the Bible tells us again and again to rejoice. No wonder even under the Old Covenant, God sets up feast days and told his people to spend them enjoying themselves, praising him and having a good time. That's good nature. That was his original plan, not to set up some sad, sorrowful religion, but to have fun with his family forever. If Adam and his wife had obeyed God, they could have spent eternity just having a great time. But they didn't. They deviated from God's instructions, and the result were catastrophic. In the Garden of Eden, as today, everything depended on obedience to God's word. So when they turned their back on the word and tried to act independently, they messed up God's plan, and things got serious fast. Notice, I said, they tried to act independently. They didn't succeed because as glorious as they were, the men and women were not sovereign in their own right. They were not created to be independent. They were designed to operate under the authority of a spiritual head to draw their life from God, to be connected to Him and joyfully submitted to His loving authority. God established that relationship with them and gave them the opportunity to maintain it by retaining ownership of one tree in the garden. He put everything else on earth under their lordship. Every other aspect of creation was there to partake in, enjoy, and have dominion over. But the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, belonged to God, and he told them not to eat the fruit of it. But in the day thou shalt eat as thereof, thou shalt surely die, Genesis 2.17. God's command was so simple, you wouldn't think anyone could misunderstand it. But somehow the woman did. However it happened, she got the idea that they weren't even supposed to touch the tree. But that wasn't true. They were supposed to touch the tree. God had commanded them to tend and keep it just like they did the other trees in the garden. Instead of staying away from the tree, they should have given it extra attention. They should have been especially committed to caring for it because it belonged to God. It represented God's fatherhood and leadership over mankind. That's why God placed that tree in the center of the garden, because their relationship with him was supposed to be at the center of their lives. Although Adam followed things up before God had an opportunity to teach him about it, God intended his tree to be a place where he and his family could fellowship with each other. He meant for Adam and his wife and ultimately their children and grandchildren to harvest the fruit of it and bring it to him him as an act of obedience and a confirmation of their love for him. God wants them to have the time of their lives returning to him, the fruit of his trees, and celebrating the fact that he was then and is now the source of the blessing that was upon them. If you're wondering how I know that, I found it out to be reading the rest of the book. I found it out by studying what the Bible says about tithing which is the practice of bringing to God the first tree that belongs to him. Throughout scriptural history, God's people have drawn near to him and connected with his covenant of blessing throughout the tide. Through the tide. Contrary to what some have some thought, the concept of tithe didn't originate with the law of Moses. It originated in the Garden of Eden. That's why in Genesis 4 we find Abel bringing God the firstborn of his flock. Although Abel lived thousands of years before the law was given, 
Somehow he learned to type. Who taught him? There's only one possible answer. It must have been his father, Adam. Apparently Adam wanted his children to avoid the heartbreaking life-wrecking sin he had committed, so he instructed them to give God the first and the best portion of their increase. Abel understood and applied what Adam told him. His brother Cain, however, didn't. What happened between them as a result reveals just how vital the principle of tithing truly is. It proves there's more to it than dividing a paycheck by 10% plunking it into a bucket or legalistically keeping an Old Testament law. Tithing is a covenant in interaction between God and man. It represents a spiritual reality that is so powerful the devil will do everything he can to stop it. That's the reason the first murder in human history was committed over the tide. You probably remember the story when Cain and Abel brought their tithes, God accepted Abel's and refused Cain's. That threw Cain into such a rage that he killed his brother. That's why it's so crucial to Cain, Cain that God accepts his tithe. Because tithing is an act of faith that confirms the blessings. And Cain wanted the blessing. He understood that it is the most powerful thing on earth. There have been a lot of theories offered over the years to explain why Cain's tithe was rejected. Some have suggested that his offering was unacceptable because it wasn't an animal. But that wasn't the problem since Cain worked in the land. His tithe naturally would have come from the first fruits of the field. But he didn't bring God the first fruit. They grew... Uh, the Hebrew scriptures indicate they brought their third picking. What Cain gave was worthless. Anyone who has ever lived in a farm knows that late or third pickings are. They're not good for anything but coffee. They're shriveled up, leftovers that are tough as leather. God called that kind of offering a sin. But even so, he didn't condemn Cain right away. He gave him another opportunity and said, "If you do well, you will not be ex- will you not be accepted? If and if you do not rule over it, at that point Cain could have repented and started over, but he wouldn't do it. Instead, he became offended. He let the devil get to him, so riddled her up, and then finally committed murder. It's a sad story, but it makes a clear point: the tie." is precious to God and powerful to mankind. And the devil hates it. He hates it because it represents the blessing he can never have. He hates it because it establishes God as the spiritual head of the family. It confirms people as the rulers who have been given authority over the earth. Although the devil would like us to think so, God never meant to the tithe to be kind of a religious bondage or a legalistic rule. He meant it to be an act of blessing and rejoicing. That's what he meant about it. If Adam and his wife had walked with God long enough, they could have found that out. They could have had all kinds of fun watching over God's tree, they could have said, this one belongs to our Father. Let's bless it extra. Let's give it more attention. 
than any of the others. So when we bring him the fruit, it'll be the best in the garden. If they taken that attitude, God would have taught them everything they needed to know about good and evil. He would have spent much time with them, teaching them how to operate in the blessing. He would have told them all about the universe and all the marvelous angels. He has... Angels. He, he had created to help them exercise the dominion over it. He would have spent much time with them, teaching them how to operate in the blessing. He would have told them all about the universe and all the marvelous angels he had created to help them exercise dominion over it. God didn't men, intend for Adam to be ignorant of these things. He planned to, to instruct them himself in just the right way at the, just the right time. But they didn't give him the opportunity. They stole, they picked, they murdered. They ate something they did not belong to them. Malachi 3.8 According to the Hebrew sages, they did it the first day. They let the devil convince them that God was holding out on them. And they... That if they ever wanted to learn the truth about good and evil, they have to learn it from him. As we now know, the whole idea was prosperous. The devil can't teach anyone the truth about anything because there is no truth in him. For he is a liar and the father of it. Yet he talked Adam's wife into believing otherwise, and this is how he did it. Page 73. Page 73. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other beast in the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yeah, God has said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God does know that in the day that you eat it, then your eyes will be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Hmm. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and did eat, and gave it unto her husband with her, and he did eat it. And the eyes of them both were open. And they knew that they were naked. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. To understand what the devil had in mind when he deceived his plan, you have to remember that when God declared the blessing over Adam on the day he was created, everyone and everything in the universe witnessed the event. All the elements. 2. Not only did Adam and the ministering angels hear the blessing, but the devil heard it too. When he did, it must infuriated him. He couldn't stand the fact that God, like power he so desperately wanted, 
He couldn't stand the fact that the God-like power he desperately wanted for himself had been freely bestowed on man. He refused to just stand by and watch while the crowns of glory, authority, and power he once dreamed of wearing, the crown he had fought and lost everything to gain, blazed in all his divine beauty on this creature called man. The question was, what could he do about it? He was smart enough to know he couldn't overthrow this newly created godlike race. He learned the lesson the hard way. He'd already tried to break out of the angelic class in which he was created and make himself like God. And it didn't work. He ended up an angel still, but a fallen one with no authority over anything. Separated from God, a twisted version of his former self. All the spiritual forces within him had been corrupted. The light of God, for he which name had become darkness. Love had turned to hate. Fate had become fear. Since his outright attack on heaven hadn't worked, this time the devil decided to try different tactics. He used deceptions to turn things his way. He tried to convince the men and women that God didn't really have their best interests in heart and he couldn't be trusted. He would deceive them in committing high treason and switching their loyalty to him. Then he would become their spiritual head. And all the power, glory, and authority God had given them would be under his command. By his hijacking, the dominion God had already delivered into man's hands, Satan could at last become the god of the earth. In part, it was a workable plan, and the devil knew it. He knew that God, who never break his word, would not, under any circumstance, revoke the authority he had delegated to mankind. He also reasoned that since God had already given Adam the earth and everything in it, if Adam rebel, God will be caught in a quandary. He couldn't go back in the, to the drawing board and create another man from the dust of the earth without taking back what he had given. Bound by his own integrity, God will find himself on the outside looking in. Proud, no doubt, of the brilliance of his plan, Satan set his scheme in motion by gaining possession of a serpent. One of the animals of the field that Adam had named kept in mind that at that time, keeping in mind at the time a serpent wasn't a bad thing. The name was a symbol of evil as it is now. But then, back then, the serpent was a wonderful name for a beautiful animal that God had created. The serpent was a delightful creature both good, both God and Adam loved. The poor serpent didn't know anything about protecting himself. Adam and his wife were his protectors. His characteristic fashion, however, the devil didn't present himself to them and ask permission. He went straight to the serpent and did the same thing he always does. He connected and exploited him, knowing full well he was about to destroy this animal's future forever. The devil used that beautiful creature, ruined him, and then threw him away like a piece of trash. He left him crawling on his belly in the dirt with a brain less than the size of a walnut 
doomed to be despised by mankind all the days of his life. That's always the devil's mode of operation. He does the same thing today to anyone who will let him. He is still a con artist who feeds people with his lies and exploits them for his own purposes. He is filthy, heartless, hell-bound, hell-filled creature, and you ought to run him out of your life every time he shows his ugly face. Actually, that's what Adam should have done. The moment the devil showed up in the naked in the snake suit, speaking evil of God and questioning his word, Adam should have slammed the devil's face up against the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and said, You see the tree? That's God's tree. We do with it what he says. Now you shut your lying mouth. Adam should have laughed in his face when he told him that God didn't want them to be like him. He should have said, hey, we already are like God. Haven't you heard? He made us in his image. What you're doing is trying to make us like you, and you can't forget the business because we're not interested. Adam could have cursed the devil just like God did later and get put him under the feet. God had given him the authority to do it. He had Adam use the authority instead of abdicating it. He could have done at the beginning what the last Adam would, will do at the end of this age. He could have put an end to the devil's activities right there and then. He could have jailed him until the time came to throw him into the lake of fire. That's how Jesus is going to deal with him in the millennium. He is going to lock the devil in a hole and slam it, the lid on it for a thousand years. Well, I don't think we should put all that blame on Adam, someone might say. After all, the devil sneaked up on his wife while he was out tending the garden. No, that's not how the book records it, Genesis 3, 6, says Adam that was there right here with when it happened. She turned to him and handed him the fruit. He was at Eve's side the whole time and could have strained out her thinking before she got in trouble because although she was deceived, he wasn't. He walked into that sin with his eyes wide open. When he did, the unthinkable happened. The light went out. The fiery glory that had illuminated and surrounded Adam and his wife departed. At that moment, they saw their physical bodies for the first time. They realized they were naked, and they felt ashamed. As bad as that was, however, it was only the tip of the iceberg. It was only the part they could immediately see. What they couldn't see was the distortion that had taken place within them. They could sense it because they felt fear and shame for the first time in their short lives. But they could not possibly have grasped and the full implication of what they had done. They couldn't have known the same thing that once happened to the devil was now happening to them. Because they had disconnected from God, the spiritual forces he had put within them were being twisted 180 degrees, became becoming the polar opposite of what God intended. 
They didn't understand it at all. But the horror of it, it hit them right there away. They knew they had made a catastrophic choice when the light went out. But there was nothing they could do about it. They had unplugged from God and plugged into Satan. And now there wasn't any way for them to break loose from him. They were like babies who had once been linked by a spiritual implicable cord to God. Through that cord, God's own love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and temperance had flowed continually into them. But now that cord linked them to the devil, and every foul thing in him was flowing into them. Because they were made to partake of the nature of their spiritual head, the light within them had become darkness. The love had turned to hate. Their fate turned to fear. At that moment, what was said about evil men 4,000 years later could have been said of Adam and Eve. You are the father. You are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. God had warned them it would happen. He told them the day they disobeyed and ate of the fruit of God's tree, they would die. He didn't mean that their bodies would immediately stop functioning and they would cease to exist. People sometimes think that that's what he meant because they have such a misunderstanding of death. But the fact is, no spirit being ever ceases to exist. Once spirit beings are created, they are bound forever because they are external creatures. Because God is life to a spirit being, the true meaning of death is separation from God. According to the definition, God's warning came to pass not when Adam and Eve bodies finally surrendered to the effect of the death some 900 years later, but the very moment they committed sin, the first instant they disobeyed, they disconnected from the life of God and died spiritually. Although the Bible doesn't say for sure, things might have been a different course had Adam repented and taken responsibility for what happened, but he didn't. When God came looking for him in the garden, instead of running to him and confessing his sin, Adam hid because he was naked and afraid. He cowered behind the bushes and tried to cover up his shame. Since God is omniscient, Adam couldn't really conceal anything from him. God knew where Adam was and what he had done the whole time. He didn't have to wait for Adam to tell him. He could have come storming into the garden, tearing things up and exposing Adam's sin. He could have pulled Adam out of his hiding place and said, Don't you think I can see in there your naked, disobedient man? But that's not the way God is. He's a gentleman. In his kindness, he called out to Adam and said, Where are you? To let them know he was close by. He didn't want to embarrass them. He knew that they felt shame. So he dealt with them with graciousness and sensitivity. He gave them the opportunity to come to him on their own, to regain their place by choosing to acknowledge their sin. 
But they didn't take the opportunity. When Adam came out of the hiding, God asked him the direct question. Who told thee that thou was naked? Has thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shalt not eat? Rather than owing up to this rebellion, Adam blamed his wife. He said, The woman whom thou gavest to me with me to be, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Adam's wife did the same thing when God said to her, What is this that thou hast done? She shifted the blame and answered, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Verse 13. What happened next had been misunderstood for years. Through misinterpretation of the scriptures, people have the idea that God responded in anger to Adam and Eve's sin and denial, punishing their sins by pronouncing curses on them and then casting them out of the garden. But nothing could be further from the truth. The whole message of the Bible is that God still loved Adam and Eve. And in their fallen state, as he has loved the whole world ever since. He loved them so much that he was willing to sacrifice himself to save them from the spiritual death trap that had ensnared them. His immediate response was not to punish mankind for what they had done, but to redeem them from it. If that's true, then why did God release the curse, you might ask? God didn't release the curse. Adam did. By putting the blessing into the hands of the devil under dynamic control, the blessing became the exact opposite of what God had created it to be. The blessing became the curse. Adam had no idea that could happen, and the devil didn't either. He had it figured another way. He thought that by the capturing mankind, he could gain access to the power and glory that had been given to the rule of the earth. He thought he could elevate himself by their godlike status and get his hands on the blessing. But he was wrong. His conquest of Adam and his wife didn't cause him to ascend. It caused them to fall. Instead of becoming Lord of the blessing, he had coveted. The devil had deadness contaminated his glorious power, and he became Lord of the curse. At first, he didn't realize it. He couldn't fully see the deadly consequences of his actions. Neither could the man and woman. All they knew for sure was that the light of God's glory had gone out. They had no way of knowing what would happen to them and to the earth as a result. So God told them. He spoke to them about the curse they had released through their blessing, through their rebellion. He didn't create the curse by declaration as he did the blessing. Legally, he could not do that because he had delegated his creative authority on earth to man. He simply informed the devil first, then Adam and his wife, that the repercussions of what they had done. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon the belly shalt thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of our life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of your wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, 
Thou shalt not eat of it. Curse is the ground for thy sake. In toiling sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and twistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herbs of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Genesis three fourteen fifteen and 17 through 19. Because Adam had been given dominion over the whole earth, the curse that came through him struck every molecule of matter in existence on this planet. All the dirt, vegetation, every cell of every animal, everything from the minute detail to the biggest thing on earth was affected by it. According to the Bible, the whole creation groaned under the bondage that came upon it because of mankind's sin. The fact the curse covered this planet from top to bottom and all the way around and hit everything that swims, flies, crawls, and creeps reveals in reverse the true magnitude, the blessing. It confirms the staggering spiritual capacity God had given to man. It also proves that although the curse carries the devil's nature and influence, he isn't the driving force behind it. He doesn't have that kind of power. He can't do anything at all in the earth without human assistance. On his own, he couldn't have affected one square inch of this planet. Because he is full of pride, he would like for us to think otherwise. He likes us to believe he's an absolute powerhouse and that we as human beings are just unworthy like worms that God has mercy on. But don't fall for that. It is a lie. Even, even fallen, unredeemed men and women are more powerful than the devil and can take authority over him to some degree. They rarely do because he has deceived them and bound by fear, but they have the ability just one human being has such tremendous spiritual capacity that thousands of demons can, can live in and around him. If you doubt it, read the New Testament around the madman of, of Gadara. He had so many devils inside him that when Jesus cast them out and sent them into a herd of pigs, they drove all 2,000 of those pigs crazy. So crazy, in fact, that they rushed off a cliff and drowned themselves in the sea. That shows you how helpless demons are when they're on, on their own. Through the man from Gadara, they were able to terrorize the entire region and everyone in it. Once they lost the man's authority, they couldn't even control a herd of pigs. If one man has the much power in his fallen state, how much power and authority do we as believers have? We have all power and all authority because Jesus does and we are in him and he is, he is in us. The devil doesn't want you to know it, but this is the truth. There's nothing bigger in this universe than redeemed man. Old Brother Copeland, surely God is bigger than a redeemed man. God is the most high. There's no argument about that, but if you think that that lowers our spiritual status, consider this. Through Jesus, the Most High God lifted us up to his level. 
by seating a born-again, resurrected man at his right hand as an eternal member of the Godhead, the Most High has included all of us who by faith are in Christ. In the Godhead too, he has made us part of the body of Christ and set us far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in, in this world, but also in that which is to come. There is a man in the Godhead, the man Jesus.